is New Albion calling. New Albion calling. Good evening. My name is P.G. Basilthorpe Stilton, OAE, and you are listening to the ARC Light Programme. Now pay attention. I'm speaking to you from the Albion Radiophonic Corporation studios today, as due to an unfortunate lapse in moral fibre, Mr. Pilkington Rhubarb is otherwise indisposed. Frightful bore. However, on the upside, I've been asked to step in at very short and extremely expensive notice to read you a story from my memoirs. The whole of history, and how I wrote it. This epic telling is from my time as chief war correspondent for the Gazette, 1830-1841, covering the actions of the first great Martian war. Now, as I suggest, you should pay attention as... In contrast to the usual nonsense broadcast here, you might learn a thing or two. ARC presents The Battle of Turnip Field by me, P.G. Basilthorpe Stilton, OE. When history shines its gaudy limelight of posterity on the humble actions and, indeed, actors of the great Martian War, there'll be few scenes less unilluminating than the incredible action of noble Albioners that I witnessed upon Turnip Field. Every instant relating to that remarkable battle is a reflection of our great and noble character, even the bits that didn't go so well. In fact, perhaps those bits the most. Nevertheless, it was a great and resonating victory that brought about the downfall of the demons. It has been said that before Turnipfield we knew no victories, and after it we pretty much kicked their butt all the way back to Mars. Before this day, We were lame sparrows led by blind donkeys. But after the great event, it was the other way around. Or, dare I say it, vice versa. How was this great victory achieved? And who were the stout-of-heart Albioners that brought it home to us? Well, let me try and lay it out for you, in a way that even you might just be able to comprehend. And lo, the curtain swings aside on the morning of 18th June in the year of our Lord, 1839, revealing a cool grey mist. Enter stage right, although in truth it could have been stage left, I was still somewhat waylaid by a splendid breakfast repast at the nearby Hotel Flemungera. General Ferris Nutt, a soldier of the oldest school, who would certainly have been a fine figure of a modern warrior if it had not been for his missing eye, his three mechanical limbs, and his iron lung. 
the bellows for which was transported behind him on a wooden and brass cart, towed by a brace of fine asses. Inconvenient for dinner parties, most certainly, but otherwise functional enough. Indeed, these days he's considered more mechanism than man. But nevertheless, his strategy-deducing grey matter is still as bright as ever it was, gleaming out mischievously through his one good eye. He is the great chess master, laying out his chess board, arranging his chess pieces for this metaphorical game of badminton. Performing alongside him in the chilly, camouflage-bedecked command tower, dexterously avoiding his cantankerous mechanical appendages, was the winsome and sharp-beaked Mrs. Hildenbrand Fogg, War Cabinet Undersecretary. Or was it Under Cabinet War Secretary? Bah! History cares not for such frippery. In her strong arms, a purring feline ball of fluff that comes by the name of Mrs. Tickle, the first of the holomatron detecting cats. They are not just to look decorative, but to secure the safety of the humans by sniffing out the alien hard light machines that might otherwise walk undetected and indeed unsmelt amongst them. The final player in my troika of triumph is the learned Professor Archibald Lushthorpe, inventor royal and overseer of the grand design. Together, surrounded by a coterie of lieutenants, sub-lieutenants, junior under-sub-lieutenants, and various ancillaries, orderlies and lackeys, they have plotted and schemed crafting their Martian flytrap over many days of hard toil. And now, as the mist slowly evaporates off the rolling Albion Shire fields, it is time for the spring to be sprung. Let me now lay out the stage, whereupon our fine actors are preparing their craft with a finery of detail will make you feel you are yourself present this balmy summer morning. Now, as a hunter knows, every good trap needs the perfect lure, and on this particular day the lure was the Queen's own retinue. Now, let me reassure you, this was not the real contingent of airships, caravans and miscellaneous pomp, but instead a vast painted canvas, befitting our humble theatre troupe. It was hung at the far end of the field on rangy scaffolding, in the earnest hope of attracting our fiendish foe onto the battlefield, imagining all the while they had the Queen cornered, ready to be devoured in their salivating chops. Little were they to know that this was merely a ruse to pull them onto the playing field which had been rigged in no uncertain terms to favour the home team. The many surprises in store for them I will not spoil, 
but rather allow each to blossom in turn as the noble tale continues to be told. Now the great stage manager in the sky pulls his taut ropes and summons the disk of the midsummer sun into the azure blue waters above, and its long morning shadows play across our coarse brown acre. The birds of the field skip from hedgerow to hedgerow, unaware of the coming drama. A russet brown fox sniffs the air. Does she know something of the coming storm? Perhaps. As in an eye blink, she is seen no more, and we can determine our first glimpse of the dreaded adversary. It is a trusted sub-under-junior lieutenant owe the watch that despised them first, and his cry sends up a holler. Enemy, ho! And all eyes strain for confirmation. Sure enough, there it is, the ominous great ellipse of a Martian war-wheel, belching acrid black soot with abandon as it cares not for who sees it. Rolling ever on, crushing all beneath its iron rim, fully two hundred feet in height, it towers above any circular construct of Homo sapiens. Besides this cannon-beriddled colossus, the next to be observed are ten or more heat-ray-toting tripods, their ovoid heads of gleaming exotic metal reflecting in horrid splendour. The mortal sun as evil insects. And the last to emerge onto our ruddy brown patch are the terrible foot soldiers of the red planet. The small, tottering army of Martian warriors in gilded spacesuits, beholden much as a legion of ants at the feet of their awesome mechanisms. So it is that our players are all present and the play itself is ready to move from mere prologue and enter its first great act. An act we shall call, for clarity's sake, Act One. The general is nervous. His mechanical arms seem to squabble amongst themselves to extract his pocket watch and allow a measure of the exactitude of this noble time to be taken. Professor Lushthorpe shuffles impatiently, but he is soon to be allowed respite. The general finally manages to see the correct hour, and he turns to his trusted number two. It is time. Unleash the flying monkeys of war. To witness the speaking of such a noble address causes my heart to skip a beat. A bleary tear of endeavour moistens my eye as the signal flags of destiny are hoisted. Even Mrs. H.F. and the feline Tickle are on tenterhooks, as we all shield our eyes whilst looking to the east for a first glimpse of our dawn crusaders. For a moment there is palpable angst. The Martians' fearsome engines are so near now, their ominous progress shakes our tower. Have the monkeys swung back into their trees in search of a banana or similar simian treat? No. 
Fear not, stout Albiners, for we hear them even before we see them. Exploiting a weakness amongst the hideous would-be usurpers, used only to crushing the lesser beings of their colonies underfoot, that has deprived them of weapons with elevation and accuracy to attend to heavier-than-air flying machines, they swoop. Coming directly from the sun, for further advantage, the first of the four-winged aeroplanes appear. Each vessel piloted by a gang of bonobo monkeys, trained over many hours to fly with one true purpose only, or as close to that as they could get. The quadplanes are delicate canvas on wood affairs, flighty moths fleeing the sun's flame much against their set nature. However, their payloads lack delicacy in equal measure. Suspended beneath each kite is the full trunk of an Albion oak. Hung as if a giant's trapeze, surfeit only the lithe, if large, acrobat. With reasonable organisation, they make for the tripods that are their prey. But the game is afoot now, and the enemy are waking to their challenge. Fiery heat rays of sickening orange and purple lace the previously unrent sky. Will the monkeys panic as reality vows to burn their underbellies? Well, yes, they will. But even in the chaos, they begin to find their mark. The first oak hits a tripod and it teeters and falls. A mighty huzzah is lifted amongst the many tiered ranks of lieutenants. A great unleashing of pent-up fury. A blow for humanity. Nay, a blow for primates of any description the world over. Nay, nay, and thrice nay, surely a blow for all sentient, four-limbed and single-headed, fleshy organisms within the galaxy as we know it. With mine very own eyeballs, I see the inhuman appliance hit the turnip-festooned sod, and another joins it, and another. But woe! The brave moths are afire too, and many fly hither and thither with little obvious sensibility or design. Nonetheless, the plan seems to have borne succulent satsumas of success. As the smoke disperses, we see plain that all the tripods lie felled. Another huzzah, less full-bodied, but still hearty, erupts from mouths of military folk. Wait, though. Call woe, ye huskies of rejoicing, for still the wicked war-wheel continues its relentless turn, crushing now its own fallen as much as the tears of Albion. It cannot, it will not be stopped. Nor will it. Permit me, if you will, a small departure from our pièce beyond fate, and a mousse-bouche, to refresh the palate before our main course is devoured. Another time. Another field where yours truly bore witness to a similar miracle in space and time and, dare I say it, mud. On this occasion, a magic trick, the likes of which have never been seen before or since or even after that. Another expectant crowd but this time not hunkered in a bestilted bunker, 
but jovially seated in a temporary grandstand. The spectacle that day was the japery of Sinor Apocalypse, not his real name, a four-bit magician of semi-noble bearing for whom no stunt was too stunted. At his show, an undeniably tangible curtain hung, in red velvet, fully a quarter furlong across an otherwise devoid plantation. Anticipation of plenty was raised amongst the throng, as with much ado, the senior swept those curtains dramatically apart to reveal an elephant in solitary splendour, with nothing else to be seen in all directions, or indeed, anywhere. The curtains are then pulled slowly closed again, and the pachyderm obscured from general view. Then, with great drama and alarm, the curtains are set ablaze. They burn intense and black with flickering red and yellow and white flames, perhaps also orange, snarling for seconds that become a minute or possibly two. But lo, as the flames subside and the smoke clears, a miracle is now revealed, for the field is utterly empty. No elephant, no magician, no stagehands, nothing. The crowd are left speechless, amazed, delighted. Many theories are offered, but none can satisfy. The empty field does not lie. It speaks its own plain, indigestible veritas. Magic is real. After our excited trudge back to waiting carriages, I wrote up this extravaganza for the Gazette, noting for posterity the name of the technician who had helped devise the illusion. A certain A. Lushthorpe, as yet devoid of titles. The man currently only a casual swing of a mace from my current location. The true maestro of Apocalypse's mystery play. So how was the miracle manifested? I will not reveal the magician's art so crudely, but to suffice to say the endeavour was not without its bloody, sweaty and teary toil. And a steam-powered digging machine. And so, with a thought to the man as yet unprofessed and soon to be recognised by the Crown in no uncertain terms, we return to our unfolding drama for the second act. Horror. Alarm. More alarm. Further horror. The alien's mighty annulus continues to advance, Unfettered by Albion clod, cleaving limpet-wise to its relentless spindle. As the diadem of dire destiny continues to roll forward, it is fast approaching the time for Professor Lushthorpe to reverse his great conjuring trick of yore. Before and after the colossal machine suddenly arise two great rings of fire, burning hard and bright, they repel all the alien insects from them, their triple eyes blinded and stinging. When at last the mighty flames subside, on the great stage there are two new players. 
large by the standards of men, yet overborne by the vicious circle of Mars, come forth two armoured landships. Slug-like in disposition, motivated by iron and rubber tracks, and belching smoke from their dark, coal-burning bellies, they move with inverse alacrity to block the path of the horrible halo fore and aft. This brace of mighty ferrous wedges achieve their goal. The wreath is chocked and cannot revolve further forwards or back. What now? The roar of monkey-manipulated aero-engines is upon us once more. Two of the little quadplanes return with an almighty twisted metal hawser between them. These are the aces of Albion, the very zenith of primate pilotage permunkified. One kite, its team of bonobos holding it at a death-defying angle, flies directly through the very spokes of the aureole as the other passes above it. Thus entwined in the cable, the engines of the quadplanes chugging furiously. The wheel is pulled from the perpendicular and, its own weight now its downfall, begins to topple. It is said the bigger you are, the harder you land on your ass, and its proof is now in the suet-based dessert. The radius is laid low, in a choke of mud, with a mighty tremble that rattles even the lion-ung of the general himself, startling his asses. The coronet of the would-be conquerors is thrown to the floor of the throne room. It will not rise again. And yet, there is one more twist in our tale, as with a series of pops, the very turnips of the field begin to explode. One by one, these roots are revealed to be not sons of the soil, but more perfidious parsnips, iron gas grenades, each exploding with a guff of wretched brown emittance. This sickly smoke engulfs the hoplites of the opposition, now all but made wretched by our game, and one by one they drop to the floor, bereft of consciousness. And so, dearly purchased at the expense of the rich blood shed on the memorable occasion, but in the successful issue of this arduous contest, the matter is settled. The war wheel is a wretched wreath to the fallen, and now, amongst the inert, unconscious fiends, our own foot soldiers dare emerge, scarlet-coated, armed and treading cautiously, but they need not worry, as Professor Lushthorpe's tricks have worked with incandescent wonder, and the great metaphorical curtain now swings down to end our opera. And so... The audience departs, and the stagehands tidy the remains from the field of clay. The unconscious carcasses of the protagonists are gathered, with more care than is deserved, and ferried by horse and cart back to the site of their arrival. With time of the essence, they are transmitted by alien magic, barely in our ken, back to the moon, where to be slung back on their rockets and sent 
packing into the dark void. In the rough direction of the angry red planet we call Mars. God of War. There had been hollers amongst the unruly mob that the red men should be put to the sword for their many sins, but for some unknown reason they seemed to ebb away as the deeds of the miscreants fade quickly from the memory. Indeed, many a man cannot seem to even remember how they came to be here in the first place. It is rumoured that this mass absent-mindedness is a side effect of the professor's malodorous vapour. But even that cannot be determined. As a postscript, I do, however, mull from time to time, over a nice juicy solo perhaps, whether we have laid the seeds of our own future tree of calamity. Can the Martian fiends ever find their way back to Earth to finish their foul work? I shudder at this thought, until another glass of finest cognac becomes me. Who can say? For the time being we have achieved what was intended on that inglorious field of turnips. A restoration of peace to Albion and to the universe. All is well once more. The play has proffered its payoff. The exits are opened by hands unseen, and one can step out into the street and breathe the damp air of eternal hope once again. Fill your lungs, stout folk of Albion, for we are free once more, and ever grateful to the fateful fusiliers of the Empire who fought so bravely in the pugilistic performance, mythologised for evermore as the Battle of Turnip Field. Well, that's a mighty fine, multiple award-winning account, if I do say so myself. And replete with seminal life lessons, and if it's taught me anything in life, it's this. You can't fight a drunken Martian elephant whilst hiding behind a teapot. Right. I'm off to the broadcasting house bar now to drink myself silly on free booze. But in the meantime... Good night, New Albion. I wish you dreams of a future free from Martian heat ray untimely death. created by 
and copyright to Darren Callow. All music by Charlotte Savigar. Tales of New Albion is available to buy from the Amazon online stores or via Bandcamp where the soundtrack album is also available. For more information, go to www.talesofnewalbion.com or search for Tales of New Albion on Facebook. Tales of New Albion is a Monkey Teaspoon production for Albion, a radiophonic.